Chapter Eleven of Mr. Trunnell, Mate of the Ship Pirate. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mr. Trunnell, Mate of the Ship Pirate, by T. Jenkins Haynes, Chapter Eleven. We went along in silence for some time the fog seeming to fall like a pall upon the spirits of the men. The wash of the oars and the gurgle of the bow-wave were the only sounds that were audible. After half an hour of this I arose and sent a hail through the bank of mist, which I thought would reach a vessel within half a mile. There was no sound of an answer, the dank vapour appearing to deaden my hail and swallow up all noise a short distance beyond the boat. It was uncanny to feel how weak that yell appeared. I saw Jim looking at me with a strange light in his eyes, as though he felt danger in the air. After an hour more of it, the faces of the men plainly showed their anxiety. Philippi, the dago, was chewing the corner of his dank moustache, and his eyes wandered aft, and then forward. Jenks, with his large wrinkled face grey with a vapour, sat staring ahead, straining his ears for the slightest sound that would locate the vessel. I put both hands to my mouth again, and strained away my hardest. There was no response, the sound falling flat and dull in the wall of mist. Then I knew we were in danger, and gave the order to stop rowing. The silence around us was now oppressive. We were all waiting to hear some sound that would locate either one or the other of the vessels. The breeze carried the masses of vapour and cool spurts into our faces, and I felt sure the pirate would soon change her bearings under its influence. We had been running away from the main heave of the sea, as I supposed, but now there appeared to be a sidelong motion running with the swell, and at an angle to its general direction. "'Tis no manner of use trying to keep along as we are, do you think so?' suggested Chips. "'We must have passed her.' I hailed again, and after waiting for an answer, headed the boat around in the hope that we had overreached the ship, and would come within hailing distance on our way back. The order was given to pull very easily and listen for sounds. "'This is most disgusting,' said Miss Sackett. I'm as hungry as a bear, and here we'll be out for the Lord only knows how long. I think you might have seen to it that I had some breakfast. And she looked at Mr. Bell, our third officer. There's water under the stern sheets, suggested that officer, meekly. But the young lady gave a pretty pout and shrugged her shoulders. In a little while we stopped again and hailed loudly. The only sound in answer was the low hiss of a sea, which had begun to make with the breeze, and which broke softly ahead. Suddenly we heard the distant clang of a ship's bell. It sounded far away to starboard. "'Give way, bullies, strong!' I cried, and the next instant we were heading toward it. Then it died away, and we heard it no more. After ten minutes' pull we stopped again, for fear of overreaching our mark. We hailed, and got no answer. Then we rolled slowly along, listening, in the hope that they would ring again. In a little while we lay drifting, and all hands strained their ears for sound. Suddenly something alongside gave a loud snort. 
I started up, and the men turned their faces forward. A deeper shadow seemed to hang over us, and the breeze died away. Then the snort was repeated, and a voice spoke forth. "'Of all the damn fools I ever see, that second mate stands way ahead. Now I once thought Trunnell didn't know nothing, but that young whelp is a pisonous fool, and must be ripped up the back. Sack it, old man, your daughter can't leave you. Here she be alongside with them boatmen again.' The voice was drawling and not loud, but I recognized it fast enough. In an instant the boat's bow struck the side of the sovereign, and we saw Andrews leaning over the rail near us, looking down with a sour smile. There was nothing to do but go aboard, for we had nothing to eat in the small boat, and the danger of getting lost entirely was too great to make another attempt to get back to the pirate while the fog lasted. Miss Sackett was helped over the rail by her father, who came up immediately, and the rest scrambled over with some choice English oaths as they commented upon their luck. Andrews gave me a queer look as I climbed past him, and for an instant I was ready to spring upon him. But he gave a snort of disgust, and turned away. Chips, Jim, and the others of our crew came aboard, and the small boat was dropped astern where she towed easily, the breeze just giving the sunken ship steering way under the storm topsail. The beef barrels were in no way injured by their immersion in salt water, so Captain Sackett gave the steward orders to prepare a meal for all hands upon the cabin stove. Salt junk and tinned fruits were served for everybody who cared to eat them, and afterward all hands felt better. The ship's water tanks were full of good water, and as she listed considerably to starboard under the gentle breeze, owing to her waterlogged condition, the port tank was accessible from the deck-pipe. I had enough to eat before coming out, and the predicament we were in did not tend to strengthen my appetite. I, however, made out to sit down at the cabin table with Captain Sackett, Andrews, who was now his mate, and our third officer. Miss Sackett joined us, and we fell too. No sooner had Andrew started to shovel in the good junk, and Mr. Bell the fruit, than Sackett arose from the table and looked severely down upon them. Fortunately my satisfied appetite had prevented any unnecessary hurry to eat on my part, for our new skipper frowned heavily. "'I wish to give thanks, O Lord,' said he, raising his eyes toward the skylight, and dropping his voice into a dignified tone. For thy kind mercy in delivering us from the perils of the deep. Make us duly thankful for thy mercy, and for the food thou hast seen fit to place before us. Amen, sounded a gruff voice beside me. I looked at Andrews, but he appeared to pay no attention whatever to what was transpiring. Then I turned to Sackett to see if he had taken offence. The stout, ruddy-faced skipper seemed to be changed to stone for an instant, and his fixed glare was full upon Andrews. The ruffian appeared to enjoy the situation, for he gave a fierce snort, and turned his face to the skipper. "'No offence, old man. Sit down and eat your grub. There's no use working up unchristian-like feeling between us, simply because I'm not going to let any damn foolishness stand between me and my vittles. Eat while you may,' says I, "'and God bless you for a kind-hearted, gentle skipper.' You says yourself that the Lord helps them as helps themselves, 
which goes to show I'll just make a stab for another piece of that junk before some other son of a gun runs afoul of it and helps himself, which would be going, of course, again the will of the Lord. Sackett hardly breathed. His face turned purple with rage. Andrews took no notice of him save to draw a revolver from his pocket and place it on the table beside his plate. "'Sit down and eat, Papa,' said Miss Sackett, who was at his right hand, and as she did so she placed her hand upon his shoulder. The touch of his daughter's hand seemed to bring the skipper back to his senses, or rather seemed to enable him to thrust his present feelings aside for her sake. He sat down and stared at Andrews for fully a minute, while that ruffian ate and winked off-times at Mr. Bell. Once in a while he would give a loud snort and hold his face upward for an instant. Then a sour smile would play around his ugly mouth as though he enjoyed his humour intensely. The third officer frowned severely at him several times, and then asked in his silly voice if he would please behave himself. The effect was altogether too ludicrous to be borne. Miss Sackett smiled in spite of herself, and I almost laughed outright. Then, feeling sorry for my host, I began to eat as an excuse to hide my feelings. Sackett ate little, and in silence. When he was through, he arose and left for the deck, leaving the rest of us at the table. Miss Sackett followed him quickly, as though she instinctively felt what might happen if she remained. I sat there looking at Andrews for some moments. He raised his head several times, and gave forth his peculiar snort, smiling at Mr. Bell. "'Young fellow,' said he, slowly, "'we've had a turn or two, and nothing much has come of it. Let's shake, and call it square.' And he held out his hand toward me. "'I suppose you really had some cause to lose your temper,' I answered, the day I hailed you from the poop because you were used to commanding there. I've heard many unpleasant things about you, Captain Andrews, but if you will let matters pass, I'm willing. I never turned down a man yet on hearsay when he was willing to see me halfway. Here I took his hard, muscular hand and held it for a moment. He smiled sourly again, but said no more about our fight. "'You see,' he went on, after a moment's pause, I'm second in command here now, and I'll show you no such treatment like what I got aboard the pirate. This gun I has here is only to let a man see his limit afore it's too late. If I didn't show it, he might go too far, and then—well, I reckon you know just what might happen, being as Trunnell has told you what a gentle, soft-hearted fellow I am. He's a rum little dog, that fuzzy-headed fellow, Trunnell. Did you ever see such arms in anything but an ape? Ellen Blazes, he could squeeze a man worse than a Coney Island maiden gal. Speaking of maidens, just let me hint a minute in regard to the one aboard here. She's a daisy, an out-and-out -out daisy, and if there's a going to be any love-making going on around, I'll do it. Yes, sir, just don't take any of my duties upon yourself. I'll do it. I'll do it. Just remind yourself of that, Mr. Rolling, and we'll get along fust rate. The old man don't know me yet, but Mr. Bell here. Well, Mr. Bell knows a thing or two concerning captains, which'll be worth a heap of gold to some people. 
The third mate looked at me with his boyish eyes for an instant, and his ruddy cheeks seemed to blush. Then he said softly, "'What he means is that you and the rest are only passengers now. All the men from the pirate, you know. There'll be some salvage for the four who elected to stay aboard this vessel, and if you understand it in this light, you, Chips, Jim, and the rest are welcome as passengers. If you don't, the boat is at your disposal any time.' "'I see,' I said. You are also of the party elected to stay with Captain Sackett and draw salvage? That's about the size of it. I went on deck, and Chips, Jim, and the men went below to get something to eat. Sackett was standing at the break of the poop as I came up, and his daughter stood beside him. They were evidently in earnest conversation over the scene below, for as I drew near, Miss Sackett turned to me, and said with some show of contempt in her voice, "'Your captain was very kind to send us your volunteer, and we appreciate it, Mr. Rawling. Perhaps the reason he had no more men offer their services for a dangerous mission was because he was short of irons.' "'If you mean that American sailors have to be ironed into danger, you are mistaken,' I answered, somewhat nettled. However, I quite agree with you in regard to this one as an awkward fellow. Better wait and see how he acts in time of danger before condemning him. I had not the heart to tell her what a ruffian they had turned loose upon her father. It would do little good, for Sackett had passed his word to make Andrews second-in-command, and I knew from what I had seen of this religious skipper that he would keep it at any cost. As for Chips, myself, and the rest of the men, seven of the Sovereign's crew and ourselves, we were simply passengers, as Mr. Bell had informed us. We had no right whatever to take any part in affairs aboard, for the salvage would fall to those who elected to stay. Captain Sackett moved away from me as I stood talking to his daughter, and showed he did not wish to discuss Andrews. He went to the edge of the poop, and stared down on the main deck where the water surged to and fro with the swell. He had a badly wrecked ship under him, and there was little time to lose getting her in better condition, for a sudden blow might start to break her up, or roll the seas over her so badly that no one could live aboard. I stood for some minutes talking to the young girl, and when her father spoke to me, she held out her hand, smiling. We'll be shipmates now, and you'll have a chance to show what a Yankee sailor can do. I believe in heroes, when they're civil," she added. Unfortunately for the worshipper of heroes, there is a great deal left to the goddess chance in the picking of them," I answered. Admiration for human beings should not be hysterical. From the little I've seen of men during the six voyages I've made around the world in this ship with Papa. "'Your advice is somewhat superfluous,' she said, with the slightest raising of the eyebrows. Then she went aft to the taffrail, and stood gazing into the fog astern. "'Mr. Rawling,' said Sackett, "'there's no use of thinking about leaving the ship while the fog lasts now. You might have made the pirate by close reckoning before, but she must have changed her bearings fully a half a dozen points since you started. She's under canvas.' and this breeze will send her along at least six knots, and drift her, too, with her yards aback. You might as well take hold here, and get some of your men to lend a hand. 
The foremast is still alongside, and we might get a jury-rig on her without danger of healing her on her bilge. She's well loaded, the oil and light stuff on top, so she won't be apt to turn turtle. It was, as he said, we were all in the same ship, so as to speak, wrecked and waterlogged to the southward of the Cape. The best thing to do was to take it in the right spirit, and fall to work without delay, getting her in as shipshape condition as possible. The fog might last a week, and the pirate might get clear across the equator before stopping a second time in her course. I knew that even Trunnell would not wait more than a few hours, for if we did not turn up then, it was duff to dog's belly, as the saying went, that we wouldn't heave in sight at all. The ocean is a large place for a small boat to get lost in, and without compass or sextant there would be little chance for her to overhaul a ship standing along a certain course. The dense vapour rolled in cool masses over the wreck, and the gentle breeze freshened so that the topsail, which still drew fair from the yard, bellied out and strained away taut on a bowline, taking the wind from almost due north, or dead away from the cape. The sovereign shoved through it logwise under the pull, the swell roaring and gurgling along her sunken channels and through her water-ports. She was making not more than a mile an hour, or hardly as fast as a man could swim. Yet on she went, and as she did so, she was leaving behind our last hope of being picked up. End of chapter